Hey everyone, my name is Yaro, and you're listening to the Daydream Rose podcast. Really glad to have you. It's a rainy Friday afternoon in Scotland, and it feels nice to be recording for you again. I just listened back to this episode in which I talked to Ash Alberg, who is a beautiful queer femme and fiber witch, and it was just such a joy. I am excited to sink deeper into my own fiber practices this winter, and so I've always felt really inspired by their work, and I wish we could meet in person. Um, I have so many more questions for Ash, but what we talked about in this interview was also already really, really exciting. Um, we talked a little bit about the process of making and how soothing and comforting it can be. We talked about natural dyeing, the fiber shed practices, about textiles as an access point to sustainability and community care and lots of other good stuff. I really recommend checking Ash's um, online presence out as well. They have a really cool website and a very informative Instagram account. And the pictures that they post are just really want me, make me want to touch what they're making. Um, such a beautiful... Yeah, it's just so beautiful and comforting to look at their feet, which I know sounds weird, but I really mean that. It's beautiful. So check it out. Anyway, just a few announcements from me. I am... Getting ready for winter, I guess. I'm still sea swimming. It's beautiful and very cold, um, but I feel like it's making me a little bit more hardy for winter. And I'm going to start a weaving project next week. I have decided, after all, not to open the Magic of Embodiment for enrollment in January um, because I still have a few decisions to make about what I want to offer in 2020. But I do know what I will be offering, which is a live tarot class in January. It's going to be three classes on a Saturday um, evening in the UK, so it should hopefully be um, possible to attend for um, folks in different time zones. And we'll be looking at the tarot as a light in the dark, so it's a pretty dark time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, and I want to explore together how the tarot can really provide comfort and a space for ritual and self-care and community care in that space. Um, we'll meet uh, three times, like I said, in a small group. And so I think it's a really great way to kind of sink into the gentle accountability and depth of a group. Um, so if you're interested in making tarot a bigger part of your practice or you want to hear someone else's perspective or meet like-minded people, um, then you're super welcome to join. The price is $44 for these three classes until December 1st, and the link is in the show notes. And I'll update you on everything else that I'm offering in 2020 soon. Um, but I will say also that I'm offering one-off tarot readings again. So if you're interested in treating yourself um, to a reading um, around the end of the year and the beginning of the new one, then now is a good time to order that. And again, thank you so much for listening. Hey everyone, it is a beautiful afternoon and I'm very excited to speak to Ash Albert, who is a femme, um, a queer femme and a fiber witch. And I feel like those words in, alone are kind of really like, oh my God, I need to speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> We've known each other on Instagram for a little while and I just really love their work. This It feels so... Um, I literally don't find the word this time, I think. Usually I'm better at introductions, but I'm just having all these memories of their Instagram feed and feeling like I was seeing something I could really touch. And um, I think that their work definitely has 
been a really big factor in, in getting me into textiles. Um, I'm a super beginner. I just do little bits of embroidery. I'm still a year later knitting my first scarf. <laughs> so that's a slow process, but I think that's also the beauty of it, isn't it? Like the really, really essential slowness and all the different ways in which we can work with fiber. So I'm super excited to speak to Ash and yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> Great. Well, um, I have given us a slightly rambly intro, and I would love to hear if you could maybe say something slightly more cohesive about what you're doing <laughs> and what you're excited about in life right now. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, so I'm a queer feminine fiber witch, and that's kind of like the primary focus of my life. Um, so I'm also super rambly, so I don't know that I'm going to be any more succinct. <laughs> um, but uh, my passions lately, so I'm a knitwear designer and natural dyer, and that is my full-time biz, which is mildly terrifying. Uh, I'm also a hedge witch, so there's like some herbal remedies that kind of make their way into those things, but they're always related back to my overall practice, which is really focused on um, sustainability, practicality, beauty within that, uh, and then also self-care within the context of community care. Um, so yeah, all those things kind of come back to each other. Uh, it's, it's funny because um, my, I don't even know how to refer, my human uh, <laughs> made a point of, uh, or as mentioned a couple of times that like my brain always is in like 17 different directions, uh, which is true. And thankfully their head is not. <laughs> and so they can keep track of things better than I can. Um, but it, it does make it tricky running a business because I always have like 17 balls in the air in different directions. Uh, and they all come back to home, but figuring out how to like weave them all together well uh, gets complicated. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge, um, but I love it. Uh, and then my my big passion lately is on fiber shed advocacy and fiber shed politics um, because uh, it's an extra beautiful place for um, everything to kind of intersect and all of my values kind of come together and come home there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of where things are at these days. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I love that. And I love to be really honest, sometimes I'm a bit jealous of people who have a product-based business because I have lived in a tiny house, which was actually just a, an illegally converted garage for the last two years in Brighton. And so it had always been really difficult to like hold stock or really even make space for bigger pieces of textile work. And I love the, the thought, and maybe I'm totally romanticizing this, um, that you get to spend some of your days just knitting and feeling and touching things and learning about their stories that way. Is that true? Or am I really just romanticizing? That? It's so it's, it's true, but it's also not as romantic as it sounds because <laughs> uh, I mean, my business started because I was doing knitwear design um, mm -hmm. and it's a beautiful part of my business, but it's also like the least uh, realistic, I guess, of my business uh, kind of branches because there are very few, like there are some folks who through a variety of reasons um, and, you know, different 
skills that they have and backgrounds that they have, uh, and then dumb luck in a moment that is then followed up with shit tons of hard work, uh, make a lot of money doing mm -hmm. knitwear design. Um, it's a very small portion, and the majority of designers still need to supplement with teaching or with you know they have a partner who makes enough income where you know the the moments where it doesn't work super well uh then financially they're not mm -hmm. in a whole great position to be in that's not been mine um and up until like three weeks ago i have always depended on myself for mm -hmm. Um, income and I have a very supportive family, which is great. Um, but up until a little over a year ago was the point where I went fully self-employed, um, mm -hmm. and so that's terrifying because with knitwear design, basically uh, I, I'm particularly known for my shawls and my socks, uh, and both of those, with the amount of knitting that goes into it, it takes me probably on average about forty hours to knit the sample that gets worn. Um, mm -hmm. And occasionally I will get a sample knitter. Uh, and whenever I talk to a biz coach, they're like, that's how you'll make this better. But um, I, I tend to not use them partially because I, I'm a process knitter and I love knitting. And so if I don't enjoy the process of knitting my own pattern, then I don't see why somebody else would. Um, and also because I love working with yarn and I want to be able to touch it and, and be using it, um, but also because I hate the paperwork side of it. And so if that became my only, mm -hmm. like my only bit of the design work that I was physically doing myself, then that would suck. Um, so I choose to continue knitting my samples. So again, on average, about 40 hours. Sometimes it's 30 hours. Oftentimes it's 50 to 60 hours. Uh, and then the writing of the pattern and photography, I do all my own photography with the exception of my books when I work with um, my, one of my dear ones, Samson Learn. Uh, but he lives on the East Coast. I'm in the middle of Canada. So we see each other about once a year. We figure out a way to work together. Um, and otherwise, I'm on my own. So I take all my own photos. Um, so that usually adds about 10 hours of paperwork. Um, but you know, if it's a really complicated chart, some of my shawl patterns will take like 20 hours uh, to, to write the paperwork side of things. Um, and that's, you know, having done this for five plus years um, and, you know, having a system down and not writing everything from scratch. Like my patterns definitely have a formula at this point. Um, so it's not, it's not particularly efficient at all uh, and then those patterns sell for like nine dollars canadian so by the mm -hmm. time that fees come off i make maybe eight dollars and twelve cents uh so you know getting my hourly time back basically never happens but it's a thing that i really love so i'm currently in a point of needing to figure out how do i make time for that because i want to be able to make time for that but then also have the space to do the rest of my work because realistically the other portions of my work make more money with the exception of my fiber shed project which uh, is currently doing an Indiegogo campaign because I've been basically self-funding that for the past two years and I can't anymore. Um, so the things that I really love that are super inefficient for my business uh, are also things that I'm not really willing to let go of which explains why I'm in uh, constant money scarcity feels these days. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I love it. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to work for other people. I like being able to have, you know, my own priorities uh, be at the forefront of anything I do. I don't want to ask for permission to spend time with a friend during an afternoon or to rearrange my schedule. Um, I don't want to ask, I don't want to have to leave my dog at home for the day every single day. Like I want to be able to choose like, you need a break from me. I need a break from you. I'm going to the coffee shop for three hours to work. Um, which is very different from like, okay, bye. I'll see you in like nine hours. Um, so, so yeah, there's, it, it's not a romantic life. It is exhausting a lot of the time, most of the time. Um, but also there's like really deep values that I hold for it that kind of propel me to continue doing it this way rather than just like going back in the workforce and getting a paycheck that's steady and reliable. Mm -hmm. I can relate to so many of the things you said, um, the not wanting to leave the dog at home and really wanting that freedom and the joy of choosing our days and that flexibility and openness to go with the rhythms of our own bodies as well and just yeah. kind of following desires as they came up and also the wanting to not have paperwork and admin and the technology technicalities to be the majority of the work that we're doing I'm so aware that there's always ways to grow faster by hiring out quicker or by you know <laughs> creating more efficient processes but I think what you're doing is so beautiful and I think that really comes through and I love that you are so close to your processes um, and are therefore so able to really communicate the magic of working with fibers. Um, that's so beautiful and I think it's a really empowering access point also when we're thinking about, like you said, sustainability and community care because for me, um, and I mean, and I think that's true for so many people, but there's such a strong sense of overwhelm these days when we're thinking about, you know, what, what can I contribute right now to climate justice or yeah. to really questioning and untangling consumer culture. And I think we all need really soothing access points that give us an embodied understanding of what we're working with. And so textiles for me have been that kind of access point where I really got to understand what it means to say I'm you know I'm taking this resource because I need to keep warm and yeah. I understand the process of how long that takes and how many hands are involved in that and um, how do I then value this outcome that I'm gonna wear hopefully for many years to come yeah <laughs> it's so funny like with my I have a mending pile and uh, I off I hate mending it's not a thing that I enjoy doing <laughs> Um, but I have clothes that I'm like, I need to prioritize mending this because I spent so long making it that I am not willing to just like toss it aside. And that sort of shifts my relationship with all of my clothes, but also most of my clothes these days are um, handmade mostly by me um, or me made, I suppose. I was chatting with somebody not too long ago and the, they were saying how like the concept of, for the term handmade is like so problematic because everything's handmade like machines get involved but clothing is still run by hands through machines it's just different hands mm -hmm. uh, and so like referring to something as a handmade wardrobe is like which is totally a term that I use um all over uh in my business but it is 
also like whose hands are you valuing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like a really interesting thing that I'm still sort of picking apart in my head. Um, but, but yeah, like being completely involved in the process of something and, you know, having spent so many hours on it, then you value, uh, it's longevity more because you're like, I don't want to just toss it aside when I spent, you know, 10 hours sewing that thing, or mm. I, you know, made this thing lovingly or this person that I know made it lovingly for me. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, there's something really beautiful about the way that textiles are so tactile and have so much memory embedded in them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I wonder how you first got into them. Did you always knit and love textiles? Yeah, I was really fortunate um, because everybody in my family uh, always was involved with textiles. So um, my mom taught me how to sew and knit and cross stitch. And I'd never learned how to crochet. Um, I'm a hardcore lefty. So when my mom taught me how to knit when I was a kid, she actually taught herself how to knit left-handed and then taught me, uh, and I would pick it up and put it down, pick it up and put it down. Uh, and it was when I was doing my undergrad, uh, so about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now, uh, that I picked it back up and I didn't put it down. Uh, and so now here's where we are uh, over a decade later. Um, and I was sort of like, like, I went through a lot of academia and I heavily dislike uh the bureaucracy attached to academia i feel like my entire master's degree was spent just fighting with red tape um and people (laughs) but uh i still coach things within like academic terms so i'm like my natural dyeing practice i'm now like my master's level of time like invested and research done and where i feel like i'm at with my practice which is that i know that i know very little um and that's a terrifying thing uh, but also really beautiful uh, and an exciting place to be at within a personal practice um and then my knitting at this point i have two phds easy uh, so <laughs> it's it's kind of funny to kind of couch those things within those terms um but yeah i've just i've always had people around me who were doing things who valued it who taught me my dad <laughs> was a a skydiver and so he I actually behind me is his industrial sewing machine that he used to mend his um his uh parachutes um and so now I use it for like denim and leather um and then both like my mom's mom knit uh constantly she was also an amazing seamstress uh Although she didn't sew by the time that I was alive, she was like, I don't need to sew anymore. There are other people who can do that for me. I'm done, Uh, which was kind of funny. Um, And then my grandma on my uh, dad's side, she was, you know, one of those old school Polish ladies who like would look at you and make some calculations in her head and cast on a number of stitches and make you a thing that fit you perfectly. Um, She also spoke eight languages uh, and English was the last one that she learned. And so there was one point where uh, my mom was helping her out with, she was finally working off of a written pattern. And my grandma was like, now I know what the P is, that's Pearl, but 
what is the K? And it's like, yeah, because it's a silent K, like you're not knitting, you're knitting. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's funny how kind of the different skills, um, I also just see it within my own life now as a designer where um, there's folks who come at it very innately uh, and they're just able to kind of see things and figure things out, but not follow patterns. And then other folks who need that written kind of template for themselves. Um, for me, when I approach pattern design, there's so much math all the time. Uh, uh, more math than I ever thought I would have to use um, after I left high school. Um, but uh, that I approach it that way. And I think that's also where a lot of my anxieties lie is within the math, um, particularly when I'm doing items that are graded. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting because there's folks that I know who never do math at all and they just kind of like pick their needles up and cast a thing on and and it works and it works mm -hmm. great for them so yeah do you experience knitting also as a healing practice and if so how is that feeling yeah so I have hardcore anxiety all the time <laughs> and I initially started my knitting again um partially so I was when I did my my degrees then they were both in theater um and so I spent a lot of time backstage uh, and needing to do something with my hands. Um, but it's also like before I was knitting as much as I do now, I would have spinner rings. And so I would just fidget with them all the time. Um, and then once I started knitting, then I didn't need to do that because I would have my knitting out. But it was great, especially in social situations, because I could pull my knitting out at an event uh, and be just like tucked into a corner and knitting. And sometimes it started you know, really lovely conversations with people. I actually dated some folks because they would, you know, encounter me knitting at an event. Um, but it also was a nice barrier for people where they wouldn't talk to me. Uh, and where if I wasn't talking to somebody, I still had something to focus on and not feel awkward. Um, so that's still definitely where things are at. Um, I, if I'm having like really extreme bouts of anxiety or I'm going through a crisis, then I will like actually count out stitches in my head as I'm knitting them uh, as kind of like a, a grounding practice. Um, but it gets, you know, sometimes it gets tricky because um, I, I do believe in like the intentions that we put into our knitting as we're making something kind of linger uh, and stay attached to that item. And so, you know, if, if there is a crisis, then it's like, what am I going to knit? Because that thing needs to be a thing that maybe doesn't have a life outside of me knitting it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, those things get interesting, but uh, yeah, it's definitely, it, it causes its own stress because it is also my source of income. And so there's always deadlines attached to it, but it's the thing that when I am relaxed, I still reach for. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I wonder also how that maybe relates to your magical practices. Mm, yeah, so I am a hedge witch. Uh, and it's interesting because I was spending the weekend uh, with a witch who it's her witchcraft is her religion. Uh, and I approach my practice very differently because um, I don't do religion of any sort. Uh, and, and that includes organized witchcraft um, religions. Like I, I have a lot of apprehensions uh, and sometimes just straight up like problems with 
um, organized religions uh, and kind of like dictated things that people have to follow. Um, I'm triple fire sign, so I just don't like to do those things. Um, but my practice is very much rooted in intention and ritual. Um, so there's so much ritual in in textiles, which I love. Um, and then in working with natural materials. So mm. my natural dyeing practice and my herbal remedies practice has really kind of become rooted in that, in particular, where I am doing so much foraging these days. So I think that's also maybe why I feel so connected to my fiber shed practice and my personal natural dyeing practice, which is in exploring fiber shed color palettes, regardless of, you know, their color fastness and, and all that stuff. Like, I don't really give a shit about that when it comes to my own practice. Obviously, I care about it when I'm like doing wholesale stuff um, and selling products to people who don't have an exposure otherwise to natural dyeing. Um, you know, there's there are two dualities in terms of like my responsibility as a commercial natural dyer and then my personal practice and kind of how I balance those things. Um, but it, in particular with the foraging for my personal practice, uh, my relationship with the land, uh, my relationship with plants, kind of how I approach those things, understanding like where you know, where are we at seasonally and how does my interacting and interfering with these plants um, impact the, their local ecosystem? Um, how is it contributing or damaging to climate change? Um, water usage is the thing that I am like constantly in relation with and trying to navigate because it's the one area of natural dying that is really um, tricky. Uh, and then, uh, like I'm a descendant of white settlers and I live on treaty one territory in Canada. And so ancestrally, this land is not mine. And so if I'm foraging from it, then I, I have like an additional duty to, um, to be very cautious and not cautious, but like conscious of my relationship with the land as I'm working with it. Um, so there are certain things that I won't forage or and won't wildcraft because they're not mine. If I want them, then it's my job to grow them myself. Uh, and that also goes to my herbal practices as well with my herbal remedies. Um, and then there are other things where like I will, I will happily forage something, but I won't forage it from certain locations. Um, so, so yeah, so that's sort of an ongoing thing that I'm constantly kind of working with and trying to navigate uh, and learning um, and deepening my my own understandings of it uh, and then working them into my classes as well. Like if you come to a class with me, you are going to get a whole bunch of politics talked at you um, because I am not interested in teaching people how to learn a skill without putting it within the context of this is what this skill means in in the wider world. Um, so, so yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. I'm wondering what kind of plants you currently really liking working with? I am obsessed with tansy all the time, which is an interesting one because it's, it's used to induce abortion. So it's like, I I've joked about how, like, if I ever had a wedding, I would want tansy all over the wedding, <laughs> but like, I don't know what that means, uh, in terms of like a symbolism for for it because um, I do really like kiddos I just don't want any myself at the moment 
Um, but yeah, so Tansy is one that I just always have a really lovely relationship with. Lavender is a hardcore ally for me. Yarrow is as well. Um, and then Plantain is one of my little buddies. Um, so those are kind of my like my baselines. Um, but within my natural dyeing practice, Tansy very much so. I love Goldenrod and working with it. Uh, and this year I started having a relationship with Amaranth, which is a really exciting color that I love. Uh, and it's very reliable, which is nice for, for my commercial practice as well. Um, and grows all over the place here. Um, but then another one that I'm really excited about, even though I like, it's just for me basically, because it's not something that is particularly stable as a color, but wood sorrel is, makes the most beautiful little blue. Uh, and it's such a sweet little thing. And it's this like delicate little sprig that pops out of my concrete. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's been a fun one to discover this year. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I'm wondering if someone is listening about the magic of plants and textiles and they're interested, but they just don't know where to start. Do you have ideas for good starting points that you would advise people to check out? Yeah, so um, my side project from Field to Skin is where I kind of chronicle my adventures in the Canadian Fiber Shed, uh, and it's all an advocacy thing, um, advocacy thing, it's where I advocate for Fiber Shed, um, and so uh, one of the things that is part of that, it's uh, in my brain, it's fully about education and networking. Um, and that's the focus of that particular project. Um, and so on the education side, there's actually a page that got added earlier this year called resources. Uh, and so those are like really, you know, vetted, uh, good quality um, resources. And this section on natural dyeing is the largest one because it's my own personal practice. So I have more things that I trust and can rely on that are listed in there. Um, so if somebody's interested in natural dyeing specifically, uh, I wrote an ebook um, that is available on both of my websites uh, and it's called Natural Dyeing as Practice and kind of takes people through the basics of how do you approach this uh, in particular if you're interested in foraging and working with your own local fiber shed. Um, you know, I live in the North, but it's written in a way where anybody can, you know, hear kind of your broad things to think about when you are approaching natural dyeing. Uh, and so how do you, how do you work that regardless of where you live? Um, but it takes you through kind of all of your basics. Uh, and then for people who really want to get into things, then the books that are on there, as well as some of the um, blogs that are on there are really rich in, um, in knowledge. They're by people who know what they're doing, which I appreciate. Um, cause there is a lot of garbage out there and it's not, it's just like people playing around with things, which is totally fine. Like when you're just doing it for yourself, then like, you don't need to worry about how quickly will something fade. You don't need to worry about like, where is it on the grayscale of stain to die? Because mm -hmm everything's a grayscale and you know there most things fall somewhere in between there but if it's falling more towards the same then it's not something that you as a natural dyer who is then going to sell to other people mm -hmm. should be using within that part of your practice um and so so like a great thing to look out for when you're looking at online sources in particular is like if somebody's talking about using beet greens it's it's not 
that they get is not a legit resource, toss everything else that they're saying out with the bathwater um, because anything that is legitimate about what they're saying, you can find from a better resource. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I love it because the practice is one that has so much flexibility, but there are some basics that people need to understand. Uh, also same with like, if somebody says that they're mordanting with vinegar, no, they are not. It is a lie. Find a different resource. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so those are kind of great places to step into and, and start working with. Um, I am also more slowly pulling together a post, um, the, the interviews portion of from field to skin is mostly me talking in, uh, in dialogue with, with other fiber shed players. Um, but when there's kind of like larger things that need to get discussed, uh, that also need like a bunch of links and, and things like that. Um, and where I don't have a specific person that I'm discussing them with, uh, then I put up a text-based um, post. So one of those is plant-based in the North uh, because I am very pro animal products uh, when used sustainably and when sourced sustainably, but there are folks that are not and that is fine, but don't come and yell at me about fur that I have sourced ethically when you're wearing plastic that you purchased brand new. Um, so like for folks that are plant-based, then there are options and depending on what your personal politics are, there are different options for being sustainable, working within fiber shed kind of ethics. Um, and, and that still maintain your own values. Uh, so that's one of them. And the one that I'm currently working on, um, that is going to take a little bit more time because I, I need time to basically find these resources and, and vet them and then also talk to other folks about them first uh, is about um, foraging, uh, ethical foraging and decolonizing your practice within that. Um, and so that post is prioritizing Indigenous voices from around the world and is basically about like how do you approach your relationship with plants and relationship with the land in a healthier way uh, and in a more holistic way and in a respectful way for the land. Um, And so that one, once I get it pulled together, uh, will be, I think, really useful for anyone who, regardless of whether they want to be naturally dying or they just want to like learn how to have a better relationship with plants um, or they're interested in herbalism, um, but not in the context of a really, uh, like, you know, commercial way of looking at it, um, or like a capitalist way of, of looking at how do you use plants. Um, it's like, what what can we do with plants when we work in, in collaboration with them? Mm-hmm. Um, so that post is happening, that is being researched, um, but I think it's going to probably take a little while because I'm more worried about, okay, uh, I'm more worried about the quality of the post than I am about how quickly it can Yeah, that makes total sense. Thank you for explaining that. I would also love to take just one step back and talk about what, um, what Fibershed actually is. Yes, so... <laughs> Um, I forgot that it's like not, I'm so used to just like living with it. So Fibershed is basically the local food, food movement, but for textiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is happening all over the world all the time. 
uh, and usually just uses a different term, but fiber shed, the term, um, grew out of actually Northern California. Um, and so uh, the, I'm, let me see if I can find, I like copy and pasted fiber sheds definition of what a fiber shed is onto From Field to Skin's About page because people are always curious about what it is. But if you distill it down, it's the natural or the local food movement, but for textiles. So trying to source and manufacture every step of your textiles within a geographic region. Um, so it doesn't have anything to do with, with like man-made borders or human-made borders, um, but it is about like finding a geographic region, usually no larger than, I think I've seen ones that are as large as 300 miles um, in, in distance, um, but generally they're somewhere between 100 to 200, depending on how rural a space is and how remote it is. Um, so it's really interesting because it, even just in terms of like identifying where are the gaps within your fiber shed. So that's currently the biggest trick for folks who are plant-based in, um, in Canada, because we have one mill that is working on processing um, linen, like flax into linen fibers. Um, but you know, that's like an ongoing thing. They're not making large quantities of fiber at this point, And the fiber is not something that can easily go through like a machine mm-hmm. mill to become cloth. And we also don't have any cloth mills at this point um, that are not like there are wool mills, but we don't have plant-based um, uh, cloth mills at this point in Canada. Uh, and we also that like they're the only ones that are processing mm-hmm. plant-based fibers into into thread or into um, yarn. Um, so so yeah, there's like some pretty large gaps that are just then like okay, you've identified that this is a gap. So if you still want to use that thing, then where do you compromise? Like how do you decide then mm-hmm. how you prioritize replacing this thing because you can't produce it locally? Um, so the sort of goal of it. Um, is to be combating climate change um, and then also to kind of bring things back to a local economy and make people more self-sufficient and community sufficient uh, and and not to do that in like by rejecting everything else around you but by becoming more aware of what do you have in your immediate vicinity how can you be supporting your local community um, and then those questions that you ask your local producers, getting comfortable with asking those questions of others as well. Um, so, you know, if you're curious about like, how does a, tie, uh, how does a hide get tanned um, using more traditional methods and you can find somebody locally who does that, then you can go and learn how to do these things And then once you know that, then you can also go and, you know, look at these stores that are mass producing leather products and say, well, how did you tan your leather? Um, And, you know, where did you source the hide from to begin with? Like, was it done in a way that was respectful of uh, the local ecosystem or and like also respectful of the animal that was harvested? Like, did the whole animal get used and was it, you know, done in a way that was respectful of that animal's life force? Or did you just like go and get something from a farm mm-hmm. uh, where the whole point of them is to become fur in the end? Um, I have major problems with 
fur produced in that way, but I have deep love and respect for fur that is produced in, uh, in a respectful way for the animals. Um, so yeah, which is always a little bit interesting, uh, getting into conversations with people who are very anti-fur and anti-having conversations about like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you so much. I really love the idea of identifying shared values and having, yeah, having these kind of like, I guess, goalposts around really keeping it local, but then also admitting to ourselves that perfection isn't always possible. But then our, then at the very least, our decisions become so much more intentional and we can say, okay, um, this is maybe something I'm willing to compromise on and this one isn't. And, but I think our engagement with those processes is so powerful, even if we can't always get it totally right or the way we would like it to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the other part of it is like how, um, like class and privilege, especially class, intersect with those things. Um, like, you know, something could be produced in a totally closed loop ethical fashion and produced locally to you. But if you don't have the resources to to purchase that thing, then like that's shitty and that's capitalism at work. Um, and and it, but it also doesn't make you a bad person. Like the, the, where I always come back to things is like, people need to be educated so that they know what their options are. And then mm-hmm. from that place of being informed, make decisions on what is the best for them with their given circumstances in any given moment. So mm-hmm. it's not like, like one of my favorite um, poets uh, has this quote that I don't even remember which poem it's from, but it, I always like come back to it, which is like people who have the privilege of not shopping at Walmart. Like mm-hmm. Walmart is an evil corporation. Most of these giant corporations are evil. As far as I'm concerned, if you're a billionaire, you're not actually a good human because someone somewhere below you has been fucked over. Um, but uh, the people who have been fucked over are not bad people just because they don't have the ability to go and purchase something that is made perfectly so I think that there that's also part of uh, the conversation that needs to happen more because uh, the slow fashion conversation can often be very elitist very racist very Mm -hmm. rooted in colonialism um, very rooted in classism and and so like we need to be dissecting these things because textiles is a place where everything intersects and mm-hmm. that's sort of why I love it. Um, sort mm-hmm. of, it is a large part of why I love it um, because I can literally interact with my politics just by choosing what I, uh, outfit I'm going to wear mm-hmm. each day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really beautiful thing to be able to work with. Um, but it's also then a place where there's a lot of mess, uh, and so if we are completely removed from the process, then it, you know, it's easy to just kind of like pretend that these things aren't a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when we're forced to look at it and forced to start unpicking it and trying to unpack how everything is so intertwined, uh, then it becomes a lot harder to um, be comfortable with the way that especially fast fashion is currently operating, but also the way that slow fashion is still very rooted in uh in a lot of really problematic spaces Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you for making that conversation so tangible and allowing us ways in. I really am super excited to share this because I agree with what you're saying and I think this engagement is so powerful and can be so transformative. So yeah, this is great. Um, I'm wondering, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, um, but I wondered if you had anything to share about how you're making business decisions because I know that's so difficult, isn't it? And it's so vague to say, I'm trying to be intuitive and listen to my body. But yeah. we're really having to make so many of these day-to-day -day decisions that sometimes can be compromising and overwhelming and really challenging. And I would love to hear kind of what, what current year approach is. Totally. So um, I actually hate running a business. Like the, the thing <laughs> that I always come back to is like, I'm not running a business because I enjoy running a business. I'm running a business because I want to make things and I still need to make a living and I'm not willing to work for other people at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the only reason that I am running a business. Uh, otherwise I would happily just like have my own practice and interact with people uh, and, you know, like run skill shares with folks and do trades all the time. Like that would be my ideal scenario, um, but it's not realistic. Um, and so, so I'm constantly in this like weird tug and pull between um, the fact that I live under capitalism and I have to, you know, make enough of a living to be stable and safe. Uh, and, and with the knowledge that I have a fair amount of privilege within that because I grew up middle class uh, and I am university educated and I have a fallback in terms of if I needed to get back into the workforce, I could. I have a very diverse skill set um, and I could demand things accordingly. Um, but that being said, I also, uh, I, I'm also like an anti-capitalist, I'm hardcore intersectional feminist. And so like, how do you make decisions that are based on your own values and that still don't completely fuck you over. Um, and that's been a thing that I've been really um, kind of navigating and battling with uh, for the past year, really. Um, and so I am not even going to pretend that I have the answers because I absolutely do not. Um, but one thing that I'm currently trying to like come back to and understand is that uh, I cannot support others um, when my own cup is not even like a quarter full. Um, so I have spent a lot of time recently really focusing on the folks in my audience who have very few resources and you know cannot afford to purchase my items uh, and trying to figure out like how what are the ways that I can make these things more accessible to a wider audience um, but as a result of that then I'm fucking myself over um, because uh, that endangers my ability to pay my bills to make sure like I, I live in constant fear that Willow is going to do something stupid and like need an emergency vet bill um, and so that's you know a shitty place to be uh, and you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to live in Canada where we have like universal health care and there is a pension plan and all those things. So there's, there are some securities, but there are also a lot of other things that are, are less secure. Um, like the, the current pension plan, um, you are living below poverty level if that is the only thing that you're relying on. Mm -hmm. uh, so, 
and and then there's also just like you know comfort like and things that we want in life like I want to be able to choose to buy farm fresh meat all the time and only that uh, and not have to worry about like my body needs red meat in order to function Mm -hmm. and I can't afford to buy that from friends who run farms that I love and I'm able to visit Uh, and so what meat is on sale uh, Mm -hmm. at the grocery store this Mm -hmm. this week Um, so you know having to make those decisions I I want to be in a position where I can use the money that I make to reinvest in the community that I want to build mm-hmm. um, and and feel safe and stable uh, and be able to deal with emergencies as they crop up mm-hmm. uh, and then also just live a comfortable for for me life um, and and spend money where my values are mm-hmm. um, so so yeah that's like a tricky thing that I haven't quite figured out um, but I am sort of like rebalancing um, where I'm placing energy and kind of reevaluating, like, where am I putting most of my energy and where, what are the ways that that is helping me and what are the ways that that's hindering me? So from field to skin, my side project is currently undergoing an Indiegogo campaign to help, um, fund it's basically what I'm trying to do is create a buffer so that I can continue doing some interviews while I also spend time, uh, finding like corporate sponsors uh and whose values i share and government sponsors and and things like that um because at this point i can't continue doing the work at the level that i've been doing it at uh, and the frequency that i've been doing it at um because it's i spend about a quarter of my working hours um Mm -hmm. focusing on it and and it's unpaid and i don't make enough money elsewhere in my business for that to, to be feasible um, so like that's one of the spots where I'm having to make compromises. Uh, another thing that I've been having to re-evaluate and, and come back to is realizing that like money is not inherently bad and the people who have money are not inherently bad. It's the way that we use money that is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, not being upset with the fact that there are folks who cannot afford any of my yarn and then there are other folks who can afford you know a sweater's worth of my yarn like my yarn is not cheap because my prices are not cheap and my labor is not cheap like Mm -hmm. I'm using farm yarns I'm using natural dyes it's an intense process that is more expensive um, and I'm not willing to compromise on those things and so my costs also can't shift down um so there are things where it's like, how do I figure out how to make this more accessible for folks without also undermining my own values, without underselling myself, without undercutting my my community and my industry? Um, so that's kind of a constant thing that I'm evaluating and trying to figure out. Uh, same with the herbalism um, work that I do, uh, like with my herbal remedies, you know, there are ways that I can cut costs but that also usually means uh working not in alignment with my values and so i'm not willing to do that and so you know how do i restrict myself accordingly basically uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of how i just make decisions and and approach things um so yeah a couple of books that i've been really enjoying working through i listen to a shit ton of podcasts (laughs) as well 
uh, in Europe. Um, but there, there are a lot of podcasts that I really value. Um, and then the two books lately that have been really helpful, uh, one of which I actually plan on revisiting very shortly, um, cause I worked on it, uh, about 10 months ago and I feel like it's going to be one that kind of like each year I, I revisit. Uh, and that one is how to not always be working by Marley Grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that book because it kind of allows me to very gently uh approach my values and kind of like redefine like where am I at what am I valuing um and then how does that kind of lead me towards my larger goals um and do I need to shift things accordingly so like I plan on reworking through that before I start doing some small biz management training uh and and marketing training um that's more specific and more mm-hmm. focused than the like, I'll just figure it out as I go. <laughs> yeah. That's been my, my main go-to for the last yeah. number of years. Same. Um, and then the other book that I actually had a huge amount of reservations about, um, and that has actually been like just exactly what I needed at this time is called Overcoming Under Earning. Mm-hmm. And it's by this woman who uh, heard dad was literally the guy who founded H&R Block. And so Mm -hmm. she grew up with a trust fund. She married a financial advisor, but, uh, and so she had like shit tons of money. And so Mm -hmm. I like approached the book and was like, I'm going to have to be like really looking at this through this lens of like, um, but I, and it's very cis in the way that it is approaching things. So I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, that like for other queer folks, like approach it knowing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it's very gendered in the way that it, uh, that it talks about things. But um, I was expecting it to be way more capitalist than it actually is. Uh, and I really appreciate it because it looks at doing both the external work of like, getting a handle on your numbers like actually knowing what your numbers are um basically the reason that she had to reevaluate her relationship with money was like she grew up in the american south women just like don't touch those things it's not nice or white women don't touch those things it's like Mm -hmm. you know conversations that they don't need to have um and then her husband gambled all of their money away Mm. uh, and then he i don't i can't remember if like they divorced and then she got hit with the tax bill or he like disappeared or something she ended up getting hit with a tax bill of over a million dollars. Wow. Which, like, how much money did you have that this is your tax bill? But mm-hmm. also, holy shit. Yeah. Uh, and she like went to her dad to ask for help and he said no. And so she's mm-hmm. like, shit, what do I do? And she's like in her 40s or 50s at this point and basically has to suddenly learn after an entire lifetime of being financially secure, but having no concept of how to handle money, uh, mm-hmm. what to do. Um, so, so yeah, so she like approaches it from that point And then from there is like, there's the external work you have to do. And then there's also the internal work that you have yeah. to do. Understanding your own personal life relationship with it, yeah. uh, which has been super helpful. So yeah, yeah really a good book. Yeah. Uh, needs it. 
I have read only the first one, but the second one is also with reservations on my list. So I'm really glad to hear from you that you liked it. Yeah. I would really love to talk to you forever. And I've just been beginning to say to people that I've been interviewing that I would love to do second interviews next year. So oh, I feel yeah. like these first ones are often kind of just like an opening and there's, there's just so much more that I want to ask. So if you were up for that, that would be really great. But for now, I would love to let people know what you're offering and where people can find you. Yeah, so people can find me um, on Instagram uh, at Sunflower Knit and at From Field to Skin. And then my websites are FromFieldToSkin.com and AshAlbert.com. Uh, mm -hmm. And so From Field to Skin, like I said, is my fiber shed advocacy. So if you want to like learn things, that is your space to go. Uh, and then if you're interested in naturally dyed um, yarns and textiles and items for your body in your home, Uh, and cozy sweet things uh, then that is the spot to find things is on ashalbert.com cool and we'll link to that in the show notes as well ash thank you so so much for everything that you shared like i said super excited to share this and really grateful for your time and everything that you do thank you so much for having me Aro. <laughs>